Good morning, everybody, and welcome to the Day Beautiful podcast feed. My name is Adam. I am the founder of Day Beautiful, the website and podcast where you can discover debut authors. If you like what you hear here, check out Day Beautiful on daybeautiful.net and on all social media at Day Beautiful. And welcome, welcome, welcome to the first ever First Taste reading series where debut authors will read five minutes from their work to kickstart Reader's Week off on the right foot and help whet their appetite with great literature. Our first ever guest is a writer and producer of the TV shows Bel Air, The Shy, and Narcos. He currently resides in Pasadena, California with his husband and two children. He is here to read from his debut novel, My Government Means to Kill Me. Please welcome Rashid Newsom. Hey, Rashid, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. I'm, I'm sort of thrilled that I get to be the first guest. Yes, you are the premier guest for this new weekly series, Day Beautiful is launching. Um, your book, My Government Means to Kill Me, is out now. Can you tell readers a little bit about it? Sure. My Government Means to Kill Me is the sexual and political awakening of a young gay Black man who moves to New York City in the mid-80s during the height of the AIDS crisis. And he comes there sort of uh, a selfish teenager who's sort of taking, looking out for himself. And he so slowly begins to grow, becomes aware of sort of the politics of the time and becomes involved. Um, starts doing things like volunteering at this sort of renegade hospice for gay black men dying mm -hmm. of HIV and AIDS. And he also becomes one of the early members of ACT UP. But that journey from someone who gets to New York City and is just concerned about where am I gonna live? Mm -hmm. What am I gonna do for money? And where am I gonna get laid? And how they turn into somebody who's a very effective advocate is the story of the book. And I mentioned that this is just supposed to be a reading series and I, we're just supposed to jump right into the reading series, but I'm obsessed with your book. I, it, was, it came to me late, I, like there's so many books that get tossed to me. And, oh, yeah. and when, it finally, when I finally says like, all right, I'm gonna sit down, I've been looking at this forever, I binged it, I was, it moved me in ways like I didn't know books can move me. And I read a lot of books. Um, you. you, I'm going to ask a few questions before we launch into reading. You, you know, you work in television, you write for television, you, 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 have, you are a writer outside of this novel. What made you want to write this specific book though? Well, there are things you can do in a novel that are really hard to do in television. Um, television is great for sort of external events. And this is a book about the changes mm -hmm. someone's going through inside. And it's just easier to articulate in a book. Mm -hmm. I also realized that this isn't a book that's very loud in the commercial way that TV kind of needs to be loud most mm -hmm. of the time. And I thought there was an audience that would love this, but it wasn't one that I thought would necessarily get a lot of attention as a television pilot. Mm -hmm. How long did you work on the project? I tell people a year and a half, it's hard to track because <laughs> yeah. the pandemic happened and like everybody else, I lost track of time. Yeah. So there were months in there where it was just, we were, we were wiping down everything delivered to our house and we were, we, were, we were baking our mail in the sun and we were trying to figure out what to do with our two young kids who suddenly weren't in school. Yeah. And so I didn't do any writing when all <laughs> hell broke loose. Yeah. And then I got back into it. I don't even know, maybe four or five months into the pandemic. Wow, yeah. Um, well, we'll jump into your reading. What, what section will you be reading from My Government Means to Kill Me? So I, um, one of the things I wanted to do with this book is sort of bring lesbians back into the narrative mm -hmm. of the AIDS story. Uh, a lot of times when these stories are told, 
it's, I mean, to be just quite frank, it's four or five gorgeous looking uh, white gay men who mm-hmm. are going through it together. And you don't see a lot of what um, our lesbian sisters did during this movement, which is really look after us and become our advocates. And so in the book, Trey, the main character, starts volunteering at a hospice uh, run out of the home of a woman named Angie. Angie is both so and doing great work, but is not an easy person to get along with. So Mm -hmm. I want to read this section that sort of speaks to the Trey-Angie relationship. Terrific. We'll take it away. Lesbians had no place in my life, or so I thought until Angie schooled me. She and I were in her apartment preparing lunch for the dying men who had the strength to eat. I'd been volunteering with Angie a few days a week for the past two months. At her insistence, I'd gotten my first HIV AIDS test. My status was negative. Without being asked, I made sure to show up for shifts on Thanksgiving, Christmas, New Year's Day, and even on my 19th birthday. Angie and I would bicker with growing affection for one another as we bathed in firm men, removed soiled bedsheets, or pressed cool, damp washcloths to burning foreheads. In the early days, it struck me as odd, almost callous, to carry on chit-chatting while performing our melancholy chores. I'd grow quiet with reverence, and Angie would have none of it. Talk or go home, she barked. Okay, I'll try, I said but frankly, this place makes me lose my train of thought. Oh, for fuck's sake, just hop on another train. The talking isn't for my benefit, it's for theirs. It helps me gauge who's still working with a full deck and who's misplaced their aces and kings. There was a method to her madness as always. A lot of the men found our banter amusing. A few of them even joined in to snap a wisecrack, usually at my expense. Angie was intimidating. Then there were the guys who couldn't follow our conversations or were becoming oblivious to their surroundings. We tracked their mental capacity with our squabbling. Most of what I talked about covered the new music I loved and the recent art exhibits I saw at museums. For her part, Angie would dismiss all new music as inferior to her favorite band, The Doors. Then she'd assail the elitist nature of museums and ridicule modern art as adult finger painting, nothing earth shattering except when I really stepped in it. That occurred about once a week because Angie was primed, had primed me to say whatever came to mind. And I would quit filtering my thoughts around her. That's how we delved into the topic of lesbians in my life. I thought I was paying her a compliment and Angie was astounded by my ignorance. You know, you're the first lesbian I've ever gotten close to, I said with a smile. Angie harumphed. What? Tell me you're kidding. Tell me you don't honest to God believe I'm the first dyke you've had a meaningful relationship with. I mixed a cup of mayonnaise into a large batch of tuna salad that I was preparing, and I thought hard as I stirred. Yeah, you are. Think back to when you were even younger than you are now. Think of any unmarried woman you knew over the age of 30. Teachers, family, friends, hell, maybe even an aunt or second cousin. Women who you heard described as liberated, strong, a tough cookie, or handsome. You got some women in mind? There was my second grade teacher, Miss Atkins, my grade school principal, Mrs. Bridges, the owner of Laverne's Barbecue, Miss Ramsey, the head of my church's fellowship committee, Sister Carson, who, come to think of it, was long-term roommates with my Sunday school teacher, Sister Strickland, my mother's hairdresser, Miss 
Blair and my high school counselor, Ms. Hammond. Can you picture them? See their faces, asked Angie? Yeah. Now count backwards for five, from five for me. Do it aloud. I cocked my head at her. Do it. This is going to be like a magic trick. Five, four, three, two, one. They're dykes. Every woman you're picturing is a card-carrying muff diver. I laughed and shook my head. Look, okay, I, I can see it with most of them, but Miss Blair was beautiful, ladylike. That's not what I was going to say. Although it was what I was thinking, little dumb shit that I was. Sadly, I was in the vast majority for once. Typical gay men in 1987 were hardly more enlightened than the average heady man when it came to lesbians. And I was no better than the typical gay man. It was as if butch lesbians were the only kind of lesbians that existed on the spectrum of visible light for men. Lesbians who presented themselves outside of the bull dyke mode as well, might as well have been gamma rays or infrared light. Men were blind to them. Call me crazy, but I'll bet all the money in my pocket and yours that Miss Blair is pretty enough to turn guys' heads when she glides all ladylike into a room. I didn't dare confirm or deny. You don't have to admit I'm right. I already know I'm right. Angie mashed steamed carrots into a mush that was easier for the men to swallow. Her temper flared as she continued. You've been looking right through women, all women, your entire life. You don't stop to consider what's going on inside of us. No, not at all. Why do that shit for brains? What would be in it for you? That's why you didn't bother noticing lesbians have been helping make your world go around since before you discovered your cock and what it was for. I'd learned not to hang my head or show any signs of fear in the wake of Angie's anger. I looked her dead in the eye and with a sincere even tone said, Angie, I'm sorry. You should be. Then she took a deep breath and calmly said, you boys need us now more than ever. Angie and I remained quiet for a minute as we finished mixing lunch. Then I launched into a glowing critique of Janet Jackson's hit single control and made a case for why the song should be the rallying cry for my generation. We laughed as we fed the men their meals. That's how I dealt with Angie's famous temper. I let her rant and insults wash over me, securing the knowledge that once she finished breathing fire, the dragon smoke would clear and we would be friends again. Peter told me that damn near every volunteer he sent to help Angie couldn't handle her outbursts. No two ways about it, Angie could be mean. It hurt when she once called me the dumbest fairy north of the Mason-Dixon line. Why, you ask? Because I accidentally left the refrigerator jar, I accidentally left the refrigerator freezer ajar and a carton of strawberry ice cream got soggy. Although her put downs did sing, I couldn't take them too personally. Her actions belied her words. I couldn't have been that dumb if Angie relied on me, trusted me to administer pills to the men in our care. She must have held me in some regard since she bothered to get me a card and a gift for Christmas. The card was blank and she wrote in it, your silly God knocked up a virgin, let's celebrate the bastard's birth. And the gift was the Doors album, Strange Days on vinyl. She might've even loved me, at least that's how I interpreted it when she began the ritual of saying goodbye to me after my volunteer shift by yanking me into a bear hug and kissing me on the forehead. Besides, it was impossible to feel singled out because Angie gave so many people a tongue lashing. She went apeshit on delivery men, repair men, mailmen, the paper boy, the woman who lived in the unit above her, 
the old couple across the hall who let their cat roam through the building. And without a second thought, the men dying of AIDS in her very own apartment. No one was safe. And that made it fair. Thank you so much for reading that selection. I love that you you wanted to bring like your the lesbian sisters to the forefront. I um every now and then, like on Reddit or on Twitter, I'll see like, why is L first an LGBTQ plus whatever the current term is? And I just yeah. love that that people continue to learn that, you know, that like it was these women that helped men through the AIDS pandemic. Um, I don't think many people still know that. Yeah, I mean, and 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 gave us a mercy that we collectively didn't really earn. Mm-hmm. Um, the relationship between uh, gay men and lesbians was pretty fraught. I mean, you think mm-hmm. of something like Fire Island, which the history of Fire Island is the lesbians found it first, and then the gay men bought up the land and pushed them off of it. Mm-hmm. So there, there wasn't necessarily um, a lot of natural warmth between those two groups. Mm-hmm. Um, and then this, this crisis brought us together. And I really think it's amazing the work yeah. they did on our behalf, yeah. even in the sense that we didn't really deserve it. But of course, as human beings, we deserved it. Definitely. One thing uh, your book, it does really well is you inject humor, even in that passage you read, there's like, funny lines um or even like maybe they're not meant to be funny but they read funny to me yeah how important is humor especially in this novel but in your entire life you seem like a very funny person (laughs) it's vital it's vital i think it's how we don't go crazy (laughs) um and i think i think a lot of times when we're talking about stories from the aids crisis because the topic is naturally serious and heavy you can lose a lot of humor you know, people want to make a point and they've got important points to make. And so humor is sort of the first thing to go. Um, same with sex. But what, no matter what people are going through, they find a way to have some joy. They find a way to have a laugh. They find a way to have sex. And so I wanted to keep those things in there. I mean, even from my own days as an, as an advocate and a mm-hmm. protester when I was young, I mean, I would go to protests and it would be, you know, there was, of course, like, okay, well, this is what we're doing. And these are our talking points. But it was also like, well, who's that cute guy over there? Does mm-hmm. anyone, what's his story? You know, yeah. what are you doing after the protest <laughs> is not a, is a pickup line. Mm-hmm. So I wanted that to be part of the story. <laughs> Terrific. Uh, you mentioned in that passage, Janet Jackson. What is your favorite Janet Jackson song? Ooh, anytime, anyplace. Mm. I just not- think it's just the sexiest thing like ever and I I can I have I mean this is what happens with songs I remember they put that song on I was in I think Badlands in DC I'm like 19 years old and I was dancing with a guy and I just felt so sexy I I, I thought she'd written that song for me Uh, yeah I think she did um, <laughs> Rashid, thank you for reading uh, on the Debutiful First Taste reading series. You are the premier guest. I, I think your book is one of the best books of the year, of the decade. Everyone should read it. Uh, it thank is that you, good. Hell yeah. Everyone out there, if you haven't purchased My Government Means to Kill Me, go purchase it and listen to Janet Jackson while doing so. <laughs> thank you, Adam. Again, thank you to Rashid Newsom for reading from his debut novel, My Government Means to Kill Me. He was the premier guest. He was the person I wanted the most to kick off the First Taste reading series. I'm so glad we were able to do it. This reading series will be weekly on Mondays. It will consist 
mostly of readings, but I will of course have to ask questions because I am obsessed with all these debut authors. If you're interested in learning more about Rashid, check him out at Twitter at Rashid Newson and on Instagram at Rashid.Newson.Author. As always, you can check out Daybeautiful at Daybeautiful.net and at Daybeautiful on all social media. As always, I'm Adam. This is Daybeautiful, and you're all beautiful. Beautiful.